This is the Gospel for Life, where we have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. Around the table today is Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Jonathan Van Hoogen from Dayspring United Reformed Church, Vinnie Hanke from Valley Life Community Church, and Ryan Hemphill from Treasure Valley Reformed Presbyterian Church. To catch earlier broadcasts, just search The Gospel for Life wherever you subscribe. To find out more about this ministry and about our annual conference, go to ReformationBoise.com. Hey, welcome back to The Gospel for Life, and Happy New Year! Uh, The rest of the guys and I are taking some time to rest as we start this new year and new week. Uh, Today, you'll be listening to my good friend, Pastor Russ Herman, preach through Psalm 115 at Cloverdale Reformed Church. Uh, What you'll preach about Russ is his dedication to the Word and calling your attention back to the authority and preeminence of Christ in all of Scripture. So we pray this sermon would be a blessing to you as you begin your new year. The one true God. But idolatry is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if we can be honest, idolatry is absolutely the dumbest thing in the world, especially for the people of God. It doesn't make any sense. Isn't that what the psalmist is saying? The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. I mean, think about this. They're actually forming that which they're going to worship. Like they don't know that that's what they did. And then the the, the psalmist goes on and say, they have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, their noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk. They're worthless. And they know it's worthless because they created it. And the psalmist is kind compared to Isaiah. If you have your finger in Psalm 115 and turn over to Isaiah 44, Isaiah has a bite to him. He's going to go after the nation for their idolatry. And quite honestly, he's going to be quite brutal. He's going to make fun of them. Pretty aggressively. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may not be put to shame. Who fashions a, a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it 
and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've done this. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Is that not the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? They planted the tree. They cut down the tree. They throw half of the tree into the fire to get warm and to make food. And then they fall down and worship the other half. And Isaiah is saying, absolutely crazy. Who does that? It doesn't make any sense. That's what he says next, isn't it? They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and, and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before the block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And the conclusion is verse 8. You become like them. Now, let's think about that. Sometimes people say, well, what does that mean? If I worship my phone, I don't become a phone. If I worship basketball, I don't become a basketball. If I worship money, I don't become money. What does the psalmist mean when he says, but we become like them? Well, what's his description of the idol? The idol is worthless. It's meaningless. Unprofitable. Lifeless. And that's what happens to us when we chase after idols. We become empty. In vain. And we put our trust in that. We put our trust in something that ultimately has nothing to offer. But then the psalmist contrasts that with appropriate trust. Verses 9 through 11. O Israel, O house of Aaron, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. This repetition, O Israel, O house of Aaron, you who fear the Lord. What's the psalmist saying? O Israel, the church. O house of Aaron, those that have been designated to lead in worship. Those who fear the Lord. Those who are genuinely believers. It's it's grabbing the categories and saying, the church, those that are leaders within the church, those that are genuine, sincere, devoted Christians within the church, what is your call upon your life? Trust in God. Why? Why trust Him as opposed to the idols? Well, three times it says this. He's their help and their shield. God is the support and the protector of His people. 
How can God support and protect his, his people because of what's true in, in verse 3? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. See, we trust in that which we see and understand to be that which is sufficient. And the psalmist is saying, God is sufficient. I think the overwhelming sense of the scriptures is that God is more than sufficient. That God is absolute. He's everything. He's the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of everything. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 26 asks the question, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Which I actually think is just the answer of what Psalm 115 is saying. What do I believe when I confess that that God the Father Almighty is the creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and the earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father. For the sake of Christ His Son, I trust God so much that I do not doubt that He will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. Isn't that just another way of saying that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases? But the question and answer doesn't end there. It adds one more phrase. He's able to do this because he's almighty God. And he desires to do it because he's faithful father. Will you trust that God? That's almighty God and your faithful father. What's the everything that he desires to do that pleases him? For his people? It's to turn everything for our good. Do you trust that? And what are you trusting? What holds your heart? What holds your affections? What are you beholding and becoming? Our second point is blessing, verses 12 through 15. The blessing is connected to God remembering. The sense here is God recalls his promises and acts upon them. For all those who trust in him. It's covenant language. It's God is faithful and cannot forget what he's vowed, what he's promised. You find this language all throughout the Old Testament that God remembers. And what God is remembering is himself. He's remembering his tendencies. He's remembering his faithfulness to what he has said and what he has promised and what he has taken a vow to do. And the blessing is the same for all the groups that were mentioned in 9 through 11 that once again are mentioned here. 
to Israel, to the house of Aaron, and to those that fear the Lord. But there's one other nugget here. In verse 13, the psalmist adds both the small and the great. Who's God going to bless? It's as if the the psalmist is is saying, I I, I want the reader to be clear that God is going to bless everyone, both great and small alike. It's it's another way of saying that within the, the church of God, there are no small people. There are no people that God doesn't see, that God doesn't understand, that God doesn't meet and bless and desire to see grow and flourish. Verse 14 takes the reader back to the Abrahamic promise. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. This is the theme of Genesis 17, that God is a God to Abraham and his offspring. Over and over again throughout that passage in Genesis 17, you have that phrase repeated, to Abraham and his offspring, Abraham and his offspring. This is the covenantal God from generation to generation blessing his people and the children of his people. And where does this blessing come from? The Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is why I think it's so important to have in our minds clearly established that God is the creator of all things. Because Scripture uses that as a basis of trust to say if God can, by His word of power, bring all things into existence and sustain them by that same word of power, that's a God that can be trusted. That's a God who has the power to bless. Bless. 